Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly and must embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 224 of Embrace the Void, where it's just a little bit of history repeating. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got a very special guest. Unfortunately, her audio situation wasn't ideal, um, but what she had to say was so great, I hope you'll be able to enjoy. Um, also want to remind folks, I'm running a three Saturdays in a row virtual workshop on the persistence of the immoral non-believer stereotype and how it harms non-believers. Uh, first meeting is going to be on the 8th of January, so if you're interested, get signed up. Links in the show notes. Um, with all that sorted, let's go way back. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Heather Redman Liza, my high school civics teacher from Atlee High School in Mechanicsville, Virginia. Heather, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, guys. Glad to be here. Really glad to have you here. It's a little weird to refer to you by Heather after all of those years. It's sort of pulling against reflex here, but um, I'm really excited. We've, you know, we've been in touch through Facebook since I graduated in 2003, but this is, I think, our first time sort of really getting to chat in, you know, in person as in as person as we get these days, right? Right. So. I, I called you, I got in touch with you because I was you know, interested in talking to teachers about sort of their experiences with the critical race theory moral panic, which has been sort of got a lot of attention in Virginia during the most recent election. And as a teacher in Virginia, I thought you might have some experiences on that front potentially. And turns out I was not wrong. But before we get to that, do you want to tell folks a little bit I mean, like, before we get to that, even, let me just say, right, it, it, we haven't talked in almost 20 years, generally speaking. How's the century going for you? <laughs> you know, I, it, it's going well. I mean, my whole mm -hmm. world is teaching, so I don't know kind of any other aspect of like the 20th century in the sense of like looking at the impact that it's kind of had on me because it, everything that's impacted me, it's impacted my classroom. But yeah, I mean, I am have stuck with te teaching so long because like it's my passion it's kind of uh cheesily to say my calling mm -hmm. but uh I, I can't complain i mean i still fight a good fight because i have now what i would consider like political capital being um in teaching so long and uh so and i'm also a liberal teacher in a conservative county um and so i also will fight that good fight as well <laughs> yeah i was curious you know there's a lot of talk these days about teacher attrition and you've been at this for 24 years now. And so I was wondering what sort of things you feel like really do keep you going with it. I think the outcomes and skills teaching, that's really kind of, the more confident I get in teaching skills, the better I enjoy, or the more, not the better, the more I enjoy the classroom. And seeing students take the skills that they learn in industry and in government and apply them and turn them into decent humans is what keeps me going. I mean, the relationships are everything in my world. Like I, I can't get a kid to do anything if they don't trust that I have their best interest in mind. And so just continuing to form those relationships to continuing to let students know that they're valued kind of keeps me, just keeps me going. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say a little bit about how you found your way into this and like what your, since we're going to be talking about 
teaching teachers and like what they should be teaching, like sort of what your sort of pedagogical training look like prior to you, you know, showing up in uh, our classrooms and us showing up in your classrooms. And like, did you know that, you you know, it was a calling for you back then when you were trying to decipher my handwriting or no. do you feel like you didn't know until a little ways in? Yeah, I, I, well, you know, I went to college as a history major and had no idea what I had, like, was going to do with it. And then I had entered a political science and was like, oh, this is super interesting. And there's discussion. Um, whereas in history classes, there's not a lot of discussion. And, and so I picked up a second major still having no idea what I was going to do. Um, and it, like, my memory has it that I went into teaching so I didn't have to leave college. <laughs> Like, I was like, uh, I'm uh -huh. like, oh, what degree do I want? This sounds good. And I don't, I think it's probably year 15, probably, that I really start to felt like to feel like a master teacher. Mm. So, like, I have a, a master's in curriculum and instruction. And I don't know if there's a day that has gone by that I have used one single bit of the, my master's in my classroom. Mm -hmm. Student teaching was, um, helpful, but I mean, even with student teaching, like I had, it depends on who your mentor is. And I had a, a coach who just, like when I left, he said, can I get all your lesson plans? And I was like, nope. So I did, that was just fly by the seat of your pants because they don't teach you how to teach. They just, they just put you in there and say mm -hmm. like, um, and then we would meet like once a week to talk about like what was going well and what was not and learn from each other. But I mean, it wasn't until like, I'd say like year 15, I started to feel like I'm good at this, like I'm needed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, now I would consider myself a master teacher, I hope by year 24. And, and so like, it, it's still I'm learning and, and getting trained and whatever, like I have IB training in LA in January. Mm -hmm. about. So it's, I'm continuously learning. And I've taught uh, theory of knowledge for a couple of years. I know you had um, an mm -hmm. IB program. So my background really wasn't like I ever played teacher when I was a child because I'm not that kind of teacher. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's not that I am in there to like, you know, I don't, I always think of people who learn uh, or know that they want to be a teacher early on, that it's a, an elementary calling for some reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I always, I don't know that I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher, but I did sort of from a fairly early age really enjoy the conveying of information or knowledge or something like that. And the, like the aha experience um, that people can have when they understand something that they didn't before. It's interesting to me that you mentioned there that like your experience was kind of being thrown in without a lot of like formal theory or training. You know, my sense of, of like teaching at an undergrad level has been no training whatsoever right until right. i got in this education program there was like absolutely nothing but my also my sense was that like k through 12 teachers got a little more like professional development than we were getting at the undergrad level but it sounds like maybe that wasn't necessarily the case for you were there any like theories that you remember being kind of emphasized during your training experience as like the the hot pedagogical theories of that time or something well when i started sol were just beginning and so there mm -hmm. was so much which is, which is standards of learning yeah. right that's the standardized testing for uh yes, exactly. in virginia i think in particular right yes uh, and and so there was so much focus on every time you created a lesson to make sure you included the the standards of learning on there and and so like i can't remember i mean my theory classes was like education in the modern world and like like what to do in modern scenarios which is useless because when are you going to have the exact scenario you're learning in your classroom? Um, mm -hmm. And, and so I just remember like going through every lesson and at the top, you, you know, you have this very formulaic, it, it's almost still the case today. Like student will be able to, and then you, you know, kind of go through the materials that you need and the, the, the agenda and then the outcome that you're looking for for each day. And then also, the standards of learning that like apply. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, I never taught a, stand a class that has an SOL, an end of the year test. Um, I've only taught like AP and IB, which has their own, just not the state of Virginia's. Mm -hmm. 
And is your sense that like the SOL, which we always we always took to be um, an acronym for Shadow of Luck uh, when we yep. were taking them, um, you know, that that is still kind of the dominant model or has there been any transition away from like the standardized testing, memorize the content centered approach? None. Social sciences, no. Uh, okay. Because skills take time to grade and whereas memorization does not. Um, so there isn't a focus. I mean, they have project-based learning or assessment um, that they have to give in, at the midterm. Um, but they're moving away from, because they used to have it 9, 10, 11, 12. Everyone was in the 12th grade because um, everyone had to pass the SOL for that social science class. Um, mm -hmm. They've now narrowed it down to you have to pass like one in mm -hmm. high school, which is weird. Um, I mean, I teaching the IB program for as long as I have, uh, it, it allows me to pick whatever I want to teach. And so mm -hmm. like within their frame. And so I just like with government, it is very, this is the exact vocabulary that you are to use. This is the exact in AP government. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's much more like the SOLs. Yeah, I mean, the, right now there's a big push, at least in our county, in Hanover County, that it, we're having professional development on teacher clarity so that mm -hmm. the kid knows what they're supposed to accomplish by the end of the block with you. Um, what are you doing and what will you know by the end of the day? Um, mm -hmm. Which is falling on deaf ears right now because teachers are literally just trying to figure out who's quarantined, who's not quarantined, who's absent, um, right. you know, who's remote learning versus just plain absent and all this other mess that goes with COVID. Can't, can't fit in a lot of indoctrination around that, I suppose. <laughs> no. It's a little little tight in the schedule. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's very interesting to me about, so like I've been doing this education PhD and reading a lot about things like the history of standardized testing, the history of tracking, which is, you know, the term for like, separating students into like higher level remedial ap ib all of these things could be considered a kind of of tracking program right right um and like you know i had a really wonderful experience getting to be in the first ib program at atley and getting like that experience of getting to be like you were describing sort of in a classroom where we weren't sort of stuck learning content in a very kind of rote and slavish kind of way um and at the same time, I now sort of recognize that that was a kind of privilege that is not afforded to everyone. And that like there's something potentially uh, substantially sort of unequitable about this kind of program and approach. And I'm just wondering, since, you know, we're going to be talking here in a second about things like critical race theory, which raises some of those kinds of critiques of education. Um, I'm curious how you think about that sort of thing in your own in your own experiences at this point well you know what my high school experience there were there were five levels of tracking i mean mm -hmm. we were tracked beyond i mean in my 10-year high school union my friends were like who are these people that you know and i was like oh i was in a different level math than you so like mm -hmm. you only knew those math kids and i knew the other math kids because um, it didn't make it to calculus. Um, and so, like, but we were tracked. I mean, it was X, Y, Z, Z plus, honors, AP. We had every single one of those for levels, um, which now in Hanover, they, the tracking starts in middle school in the sense of, okay, I'm going to re recommend you for advanced, you know, whatever it may be, English, social studies. Um, obviously, your math is heavily tracked. Um, and it is an interesting thing that kids will take higher level, well, not even higher level, advanced classes because the kind of connotation of the standard or the collaborative setting is that there's troublemakers and that, you know, nothing gets done in class. And so even if you are not academically strong enough to be in an advanced class, most kids just track themselves that way. Um, there is a, a, a disparity in looking at advanced versus standard and then obviously moving from AP and then even into IB, um, the demographic makeup 
time. Mm-hmm. It, it is very much, I mean, Hanover to begin with, at like, yeah. especially. If I remember correctly, it, yes. Oh, it is lily white. I mean, it is. H- hasn't, hasn't changed in 20 years? No, it has not. I mean, it is 92% Caucasian, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, I think mm-hmm. there were some years that we were like up at like 94. Um, and so when that, I mean, I've had years where I've had no person of color. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't remember ever having any teachers of color. No. Oh, that is, and that has not changed. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. to the point where we have a recent hire um, and she jokes, she's like, well, you know, if anything's going to happen with critical race theory, they're going to say that I'm doing it and she's just economics. Um, she's uh-huh. a black woman. And, and there are, there are no teachers of color at Alley either. Um, hmm. And, and so like when you look at those classes and the makeup, it, it, the perspective, especially in government class, where there's a lot of discussion on current issues, at least my classes every Friday is current event discussion. So mm-hmm. the, perspe- the perspectives are, it's very myopic in, in that sense that they're, we're not hearing, you know, a, a lot of different voices. Um, mm-hmm. And and I don't know if, I mean, and it's definitely possible on the, on the counseling side that they are simply saying, okay, you know, this is where you've been, this is who you are. I mean, obviously not consciously, I would hope. Right. Um, and so you're just going to continue to put you in this trend. I mean, the greatest example I have of tracking is I, I have this student who failed eighth grade, a former student, who failed eighth grade and is brilliant and he only mm-hmm. went into um he's a biracial student he only went into the ib program because his literally only friend was going that way he was like well i who am i going to hang out with if i don't go in that direction mm-hmm. and but they i mean he he's a kid that should have been at the governor's school um but yet he failed eighth grade um, mm-hmm. and, and so like, I, I, I see he, I give, he's the example of, and he's, um, now like, I mean, he's doing amazing things and he's going to be, wants to become an English professor. Um, mm-hmm. but he, I mean, he's doing amazing things. He's at CNU and it, if it wasn't for that friendship, it had, no one could see it academically that he was a gifted writer. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it might be also because they're not. I don't think they're doing a lot of writing in middle school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. That's probably a certain, another problem there, but yeah, it's interesting yeah. that there's sort of, yeah, there's a lot of elements there that do seem sort of relevant to the importance of uh, critical race theory in schools. So why don't we incorporate that in here? Let me ask you first, um, you know, I'm curious, have you, had you come across critical race theory or culturally relevant pedagogy or sort of any of these sort of number of things that are being clustered along with this um, socio-emotional learning or, or, you know, stuff like that uh, prior to this kind of moral panic uh, dust up over it? Is it, is it stuff that had come up in your personal or like professional no. development at all? No. no, I mean, we, we did, I mean, a professional development, I don't know if it was last year, the year before. It's all blurring with COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And because it was over soon, that's why. It was. And it was about like implicit bias and seeing it. And one of the teachers was like, what they say in critical race theory as well is that, it, well, if you don't, it doesn't exist. Like racism doesn't exist until you point it out. Well, that makes no sense. But that, and so we were going over like implicit bias and was looking at news articles and, and like how we like the, the, like it was a white defendant and a black defendant, you know, and how we looked at them and whatever it may be. But what I pulled away from that was how many people were annoyed to look at their own implicit bias. Um, and that, you know, I don't treat anyone differently. So this is a you know kind of a waste of my time. When it came to critical race theory, I had no clue that it even existed, what it was, until last spring when they, they the stakeholders, and some not. I mean, there were a lot of people that go to our school board meetings that don't live in Hanover County. 
I found that to be mm-hmm. odd. Um, or teach in Hanover County. And it, so when they started bringing out signs, it said, like, stop, you know, CRT, um, us, you know, stop the us versus them. It's like, what are, what are you? So you were at these about? meetings and the, you started seeing these signs? Well, no, so they were in the news. Okay, so and, you started seeing them in the news first Yeah, and so mm-hmm. they, like, it was just pictures. It was, you know, and I used it in my classroom as, like, freedom of speech. And so I pulled them up and the kids are like, well, what's, you know, what's CRT? And, and, you know, and I had to educate myself in the sense of like, I have no idea what we're being accused of. Right. And, and I hate to say accused, because, you know, I, 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 message I think it's that. very like, fair to say accused at this point. I think yeah. Well, I mean, very, it just, very clearly it, meant it's an accusation. Yeah. yeah but yes, yeah, it does. But it just, it, it kind of sits weird with me. Because mm-hmm. an accusation usually is like something that's wrong. You're doing mm-hmm. something that's wrong. And so that's even if we were teaching it, like it wouldn't be wrong. It's so it, we just, and no one has had that training. I mean. Uh-huh. So what does CRT mean to you? You said you sort of educated yourself on this some. What is your sense of, like from what your perspective, what is CRT and what is CRT in education? I mean, when I, my sense of it, and again, it is very superficial, um, mm-hmm. is that we are we need to learn and understand the fact that policy, whether it's education policy or just economic policy or social policy, um, are coming from people who um, either intentionally or unintentionally um, are producing bias and racist policies. They're creating these either on purpose um, or um, just because there is that, um, as we know, systematic racism in the United States. And so it, it's, mm-hmm. it's all of the policies um, kind of combined, looking at each of them in their own sector and saying, okay, you know, this, the testing that we're creating, you know, like, that itself we need to look at and say okay who's creating it you know why are they creating the testing in in this way um and where's the bias looking at like real estate and you know looking at economics Mm -hmm. and taxes and and all of those things through the lens that the people that are producing them creating them um are are they have been socialized in systematic racist society Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of my take on that if you will okay so there's nothing in there for you about teaching white kids that they are evil because they're white or something like that <laughs> no no I, not even a little bit not it, even implicitly that they're guilty of the sins of their oh, well, I ancestors mean, I, when we talk about my implicit bias i mean my implicit bias is every day i go to a county where i assume that everyone i'm working with who lives in hanover is a racist like i mean and, you uh-huh. know, and, and of course, my students laugh or whatever, but I'm, I, when I first started teaching in Hanover, I was like, I am going to literally the backwoods. Uh, I, I mean, I grew up in Chesterfield, which isn't any different than Hanover, but my perception sure. um, was that, you know, that everyone I was going to meet is was a racist. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, super overminded. <laughs> what did your students think when y'all were talking about this stuff in your classroom? Well, it, it's interesting, and it, it, it's based on levels. Like, my advanced placement students don't really understand the fear factor behind it. So, like, why wouldn't we need to know that? Like, why shouldn't uh-huh. we know that? Um, and, I mean, I, we're, like, even, like, talking about, like, Jim Crow laws in, in Richmond City. And, you know, like, and how I ended up in... Like where I live is the most conservative of the city. It's the, the fact whitest. That you were in of Chesterfield, the city. you mean? Yeah. Well, no, I'm just because I live in Richmond City now, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. and so like looking at you know why the near West End is like 95 percent Caucasian, and looking at Jackson Ward, which is like 95 percent black, um, mm-hmm. but because it, it stems from those early Jim Crow laws, and so just saying like okay, this is where we are now because of the laws that were created, you know, in the 1920s even. Um, and so they just didn't get the fear factor behind it. Um, and the, the us versus them always makes me laugh. I'm like, who's the us? Like, 
are you part of the us when you say like it's us versus them? And if you're the person saying it, are you then the racist? Like I, that's versus them thing. I'm like, mm. but my advanced kids it, as a whole, um, very much mimic the county and the fear of, you know, that you're going to be accused of something, um, mm. even as a kid. Um, as, or as a student, and so, so you're it saying, is, sorry, I just want to clarify. You were saying your your IB kids don't see it, but your advanced kids do. That well, the they don't the IB and AP kids don't understand why why there's fear okay. in, in relationship to critical race. Um, whereas my advanced kids see it as an attack. Like they, they are, they do feel like they're being accused yes. of being evil because they're white. Uh-huh. Yes, yes, they do feel that way very much. Do you have a sense of where that fear is coming from? Do you feel like it's coming from experiences with their peers that, like, some people are legitimately sort of set, making stronger claims about race or something like that? Or do you see it? Oh, it's from the parents. From, like, from parents? Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, it is. It's once it, because even teachers, like, we have this thing called Teacher Advisory Committee, and we are doing social emotional learning now. I mean, mm-hmm. vaguely, I say that. And and one person said, like, why are you hiding CRT and the social emotional learning? And I'm like, they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But but this is absolutely one of the talking points. Actually, I'm, let me ask you a question. Do you know yeah. who James Lindsay is? Nope. Okay. So James, do you know who Chris Rufo is? Nope. Okay, these are the two guys who, like, started the whole moral panic. And, like, oh, okay. Lindsay recently has been on about, like, how social-emotional learning is a child abuse. And it's teachers being turned into therapists. And, like, it's all sorts of, you know, it's no, another, yeah. the next sort of term that we're going to try to make evil after critical race theory. So that's interesting uh-huh. that you are hearing those particular attacks filtering down already. Yeah. The, and well, And it was from a teacher. Like, mm. it was an elementary school teacher. And... You know, like, what, and I just, it's like, they have nothing to do with each other. And I mean, in the fact too of like, why it, it's amazing to me that social emotional learning can become political. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I think you could, you could theoretically draw some connections between them and talk about how social emotional learning could be one way to counteract traditional learning methods in, in a kind of CRT framework. But I agree they're not like necessarily connected in any kind of way. Yeah, I mean, I just, mm-hmm. like, with social-emotional learning, it, I mean, it, it's a very disjointed what we're doing in our county um, because we put on, like, with two classes a month where we spend mm-hmm. talking about a, a wide range of topics, like resiliency and self-control and confidence. And so it is, it's very disjointed in the sense that the kids are you're coming in and one day you're talking about the Mexican revolution. And then the next day we have this weird lesson. And I say it's weird because of the timing when it is Mm -hmm. like, it's just, it's not integrated. You mean? No. Yes. Thank you. Um, and, but yes, so there's the fear factor is mind blowing to me. Like Mm -hmm. what's going on in the classroom how do I control it? How do I make sure that you're not accusing my child? It's just a lot. I mean, in the sense of mm-hmm. like why the community has become so fearful. It's a control thing. I mean, obviously, you can't control much about what's going on with COVID, but you can try to control, you know, exactly what child is learning in the classroom. So you think, do you think uh, this is something that has been of interest to me as there's been this kind of moral panic? How much of like the success of the CRT moral panic is that there is this concurrent rage about, you know, shutting down schools, about masking in schools and vaccinations, all these sorts of things. And that like that energy is being vented around this particular topic as well. Oh yeah. There's, yeah, they, I mean, when the signs are all made that say like, you know, masking is child abuse and, and the same handwriting is, you know, CRT is racist, and and so it's everything that they can't control and, and don't like per se. That mm-hmm. is all bundled together. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it it really does stem from, in my mind, a 
control issue. Like that they and just, do you feel, sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yeah. Do you feel like parents don't have any control in this? Like, is, is there some legitimate lack of control that isn't about CRT, but should be sort of addressed? Or do you feel like you have this relationship where your, your teacher, you know, your, your parents can, communicate with you about what is happening in your classroom if they feel so inclined and like those communications can be sort of collaborative rather than combative yeah i mean and it's interesting because we have every you know school now has some sort of learning platform that they use and Mm -hmm. and so you can belong to my you know school g page in class and see what we're doing every day like Mm -hmm. everything is out there every every piece of literature, every, you know, whatever it may be, you too can read, you know, about the rise of Stalin. And if you, you know, like, so there's, it's, it is a laziness factor in the sense of you can find out exactly what's going on in your kid's classroom uh, every day. Mm -hmm. And just by going on and looking at, you know, their, the, you know, school GNR case, the learning platform, but, uh, so other than that, I, it to me, I don't even know what they want to control mm-hmm. because, I mean, the, the curriculum, uh, I mean, the 1619 is like, it is a dirty word, 1619 curriculum in Hanover County. Like we have to get. Are you like, teaching that at all? No. I mean, no, I don't, well, I don't have it. Or you don't it, want to. It, well, it doesn't fit in anything that I teach. I you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Like, so the curriculum, because I don't teach U.S. history or mm-hmm. even world history, because um, you know IP history is super specific. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you know, last year they made a point to say if you use any of this curriculum, you have to get it approved. Mm-hmm. And it's the mm-hmm. only curriculum that they have. I mean, we're supposed to get everything approved if we use this, not like the textbook curriculm, if you will. But so they know right. what's in the textbook. At least I think they do. Um, <laughs> sure, they do. Yeah, <laughs> you read that government book, didn't you? Um, yeah. But so, I mean, I I don't know necessarily um, like why they they fear it other than fear mongering itself. Um, because like you know, no one's ever said you know that seventeen seventy six um, American ex- exceptional curriculum. No one's ever said, mm-hmm. if you're going to use that, you're going to need to get it approved. Mm-hmm. But to specifically right. point out 1619, I was like, that was in the spring of last year. And I was like, hmm. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, here's where we are. This raises an interesting question to me about the effectiveness of this, right? So you've seen a bunch, there's a bunch of laws getting passed of various, you know, levels of extremeness about trying to re- regulate um, the use of ver- various kinds of materials um, in the curriculum. So you're describing... And like, I don't know exactly how onerous it is to get this approved in this kind of way. Um, but I'm curious, and you know, like in your experience and in talking to other teachers, do you have a sense of whether there is a substantial chilling effect in the way that people are approaching curriculum so that they don't, you know, get a bunch of harassing phone calls or something like that? Oh, yes. Definitely. Oh, 100%. I mean, so especially in English classes, um, they, Why especially they, in English classes? <laughs> well, it's well at least in the IB program because it's world literature. Um, uh, but they have to make sure that the county will be, if you will, okay with the books that they pick. Um, because you know, if you open your eyes to let's say systematic racism and through literature, um, you know what's going to happen to Johnny. You know, become, becomes more open minded. Uh, mm-hmm. so that, I mean, to give you an example, this past, uh, fall, um, the national council of teachers of Edu- or English, um, they have a, 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 it's an amazing professional development that I wish we had for social studies teachers, but mm-hmm. our county's teachers couldn't go because there was a lot of focus on 1619. And the mm. county said, we won't pay for it because our community won't want our tax money to go to you learning about 1619 and how to wow. use your, your classrooms. Right. 
it's it, I mean, it's fascinating to me because when I, you know, like you mentioned sort of the English curriculum and what can get approved. And I think back to, uh, you know, it was Miss Hall at the time, right? My English yes. IB class um, where, you know, I vividly remember the semester of the year, I think even where she just taught, you know, female writers and mostly female writers of color. And that like that was a substantial experience that I think was different from what a lot of people get in their high school English curriculums and could, you know, like what yeah. we pointed to now as exactly the sort of thing that like, um, you know, forced diversity or something like that. But like another one that came to mind was like, you said you're teaching theory of knowledge for my final theory of knowledge project. I don't know if you know this. I did a history report on the, um, the U S backed coups during the um cold war so like you know because uh, we because we had read um you know uh the house of the spirits right by right. isabel allende and so i was interested in like the 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 violent overthrow of um non-friendly governments by american-backed forces um and that stuff is like decolonial like it's post-colonial kind of we didn't call it that when we were doing it at the time but like i realized now you know, I got to experience some of that again, again, because I was lucky enough to be in this particular um, program. But I wonder, you know, would there be a different reaction if I was trying to do that project now, for example? Yeah, I mean, in, in theory of knowledge, it, I mean, it is, it's my favorite thing to teach because it makes me a better teacher. Um, uh -huh. And which sounds a little selfish, but um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, there is a lot of, freedom in IB in the sense that mm -hmm. it we can whatever happens in our classrooms it tends to be like whatever happens in IB stays in IB um, and it but there is a lot of, I mean it's a big difference in the just what the students are getting and what they can talk about and versus and like if they're acknowledged and say we're talking about politics and you know uh, where your perceptions of politics and whatever versus my government classes it's a, a different discussion it's an easier discussion um because hmm. well i'm not sure why it's an easier discussion to be honest it just seemingly is the kids are there they picked to be there it's not a forced class you have to take like government and so i think that there's more willing to they're more willing to be open and explore um, kind of the nuances of, you know, their beliefs versus government, which is, this is what I believe, period. Is, um, is theory of knowledge open to non-IB students at this point, or is it still IB only? Still IB only. Mm -hmm. And they, and that's still a program where they have to do like all or nothing kind of thing, right? Well, so we, no. So that was a big push in Hanover County to put it, um, IB at, at Alley and only full IB kids could take mm. the classes so because right mm -hmm. now anyone can take the classes that um that are open except for theory of knowledge um mm -hmm. so um you know history i have uh, this year it's very there's a very large ib um class like full mm -hmm. ib students and um, there's like 28 of them and, and but so my in my history classes only have 36 in total so there's not a lot of outside, outside, kids outside of the program that are taking it. Um, that being said, English is a huge program. Um, mm -hmm. So it's there's this kind of a dark irony here, right? Where the students in the like higher tracked, sort of more sort of advantageously placed, get to have, like you say, I mean, these different kinds of conversations because they part, you know, like not just because they're they're different kinds of students, but because their curriculum is not sort of constrained in the same way that these other yeah. curriculums are necessarily um, constrained. And that like, that is again, like one of these things that critical race theory has pointed out in pedagogy that you have this problem where lower track students are not just, you know, written off, they are sort of trained in a more rote kind of education that doesn't involve as much critical thinking and doesn't sort of make them as aware of like these kinds of things that are causing them to be deprived in that way or, or sort of under under service in that way. Yeah, I mean, that is very interesting and very true. Um, I mean, when you look at um, even the level, so this is 
last year and this year, the first years that I taught advanced government in 15 years, maybe. Um, mm. And so I hadn't been around just the, that, that, that SOL life, if you will, the standards life um, mm-hmm. where it is, it is very <laughs> much that, you know, this is, this is everything that you possibly need in, in this curriculum, you know, and there isn't, I mean, the only time we have any sort of critical thinking is when we have good discussions. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's very hard to do. Like my one um, class is a class of 28. And so I love a good circle. love a good circle. And it's impossible with a class of 28. Because I really mm-hmm. feel like in discussions and in a circle, it's harder to be a jerk to someone if you're looking them in the eye versus like if they're behind you, um, right. you're not making that eye contact. And so they, um, but yes, the curriculum itself is, there's no exploration, if you will. Mm-hmm. Do you wonder, is there going to be, or do you personally experience a bit of a like Streisand effect here where it's like a year ago, you didn't know what CRT is. And now you're like, well, I'm definitely fucking teaching this. <laughs> Yes, a hundred percent. Like, well, and then it just becomes like when I do, like we talk about um, in government, like the target on civil rights and civil liberties, and in the sense of like civil, the legislation doesn't come from, doesn't just pop up. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to create this law simply because now's the time. I mean, Mm -hmm. so you have to look at what was going on to make, to you know, for the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, like they all have background. And so like, and to me, that's just a little slice of like critical race in the sense of like these, these pieces of legislation had to happen because of all of the nonsense that was going on beforehand. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, very much so. Like I, I also am a poke the bear kind of girl. So um <laughs> Because again, like I'm, I'm, I tell the kids all the time. I'm like, I'm gonna speak my mind because I am trained in two costly programs, you know, like mm-hmm. AP and IB. I mean, I won two, which you know, around here there's a local award called the REB Teaching Excellence Award, and you're afforded grant money for travel. And I've won mm-hmm. two, and so like I, I don't worry about like I put something on Facebook last year that I got. <laughs> I got called into the assistant superintendent and the head of HR. And, and what, did, what did you put on Facebook that got you uh, um, called, that, called you into know, the principal's office? <laughs> it, literally, because uh, everyone was out because of COVID and they came to his office. Um, I just said that uh, Henry County School Board's actions in dealing with COVID are reckless and disastrous for teachers' mental health. Something to that. Because the problem that we ran into last year is that they threw us into the school. Like mm-hmm. I taught in person and virtual at the same time, um, mm, which horrible. was a total disaster. Yeah, um, sure. yeah, every day was like, wow, that was just as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, and, and no one had, no one had been in the schools. Like I, I, we found out a week before school that we were teaching secretly in the IB program mm-hmm. and the assistant superintendent literally, she emailed and I when I figured it out, I was like, am I teaching these virtual kids as well? And she said, yes, I hope this helps you with your planning. And I was like, well, no. Like, do you want to train me on how to do this? Like, right. how many mics am I going to need to be in the classroom and, like, not stand in front of the computer and talk to both children uh, or sets right. of children? And so I just they, – they didn't – they hadn't come to visit us. They hadn't – like, this, this is – the superintendent has a superintendent book. And I said, he's not mentioned once how amazing we are. The fact of like, we are still carrying on. The kids are still going to have these end of the year tests. Like there's, we're, you're getting the curriculum down and, and no one has said anything. I mean, and these are the people who like, were like 17 feet away from me in this conference room because they were so scared of COVID, but yet they're expecting me to act like it's totally normal when, you know, mm-hmm. we're in a in-person setting and unvaccinated. And, mm-hmm. and so I just, it was the day before, it was the day of Thanksgiving break, and we were in there for like 45 minutes, 
And uh, my I get out of the, and I called my husband. I was like, still have a job because I think he was really worked. Um, uh-huh. But good. And so like, you know, and then I did it when they decided that winter sports should be a thing last year before people were vaccinated. They were, the kids, uh-huh. were, kids were arrested. I mean, and, and so I just, you, you did it. I mean, it's definitely my mind when I get called by whomever, assistant superintendent. I mean, I teach a superintendent's kid this year. Um, that, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> I've so, done it three times now. <laughs> yeah, so and you had another, like, recent situation of conflict that's more, it seems like, directly connected to the, like, moral panicky stuff around yes. giving out surveys. Do you want to, and this was like going to be a school board conversation that it sounds like might not have actually managed to happen yet, but do you want to explain sort of what the pushback you're receiving is and what your pushback you're giving is? And such <laughs> thing? Yeah. I, well, so gosh, when was it? October? We get a message from our lead teacher specialist and he said, um, moving forward, anytime you give a political survey, um, and again, the survey is like I side with, um, you have to get parent permission. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's absolutely ludicrous. Like I, I couldn't even wrap my head around how stupid I thought that regulation was. And so I emailed him and I was like, what is happening? Like why? And mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even like I create these. And so there's some, worry that there's some teacher bias in these. Like what I do in my class is that I give four different ones to my government kids and so that they can see like how the types of questions and how you answer them, like polling wise makes it changes your where you fall on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and they said everybody needs to learn about political compasses before they go on the internet, right? They just need to basically understand these sorts. Yeah. So like you're, so you're using this as like a pedagogical tool. You're not. So I guess the concern is what something like you're finding out people's races so that you can use their races against them or something. Yeah, I don't. I, I can't figure out the well, the fear. Well, I, I I do know the fear. The fear is that the parents don't want their kids to have a different political affiliation than they do. Uh-huh. Which, which the test will cause. Yes. Or okay. highlight. Um, right. Because what, I mean, what my kids, you, I mean, thing, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, so I, I emailed and I said, you know, like, this is crazy. And they're like, it's based upon this U.S. code. And I was like, what are you talking about? So, so this random piece of U.S. code that says anytime a kid is given a survey, hmm. that of these eight things that we, you need to provide the survey to the parents and also get their permission. It's things mm-hmm. like drugs, sexuality, mental health, and then weirdly political is thrown in there. I mean, mm-hmm. because political is the only one that is tied to curriculum in class in school. All these other things are there's no curriculum that is tied to them. And so what I thought mm-hmm. was interesting is that every time we have a social emotional um, class, there is a survey that goes along with it that has I never see. gotten parent permission. So I said, what's going on here? Like, you, you know that those are happening and no one has been given permission slips. Why is it just government? And it's that fear, again, of the students, you know, growing and learning and and because beyond that, I cannot think of why. And also, I said, well, what's the ramification of jail? And my ramification is like insubordination, which is that's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the county, so you and you go to this U.S. code and then you click and it says state regulations based upon this U.S. code. There's no state regulation. So there's no if you do this or don't do this, this is this is the outcome it's going to have. Like. They don't, mm-hmm. They're not withdrawing funds and removing funds from Hanover County federally because some government teacher didn't give a permission slip. So, and she said, "What?" Well, the assistant superintendent was talking. She said, "I don't want to find out what the ramifications are." What I said, "There's no punishment. There's not. A, there's no punishment attached to this." So, in other words, it's like giving a curfew, and then just if you don't uh-huh. uphold it, it doesn't matter. Like, and right. and so I couldn't persuade her to 
because I was like, you know, who wrote it or who who made the decision? And she said senior staff, which means assistant superintendents. I don't. Mm-hmm. There's so many of them. I don't know what they do. Um, well, but I, I, yeah. go ahead. No, I'm just curious. Who's defining political here? And, and like, do you get a definition of what counts as a political like? So like in some of the laws, for example, around CRT, there's been issues like you can't talk about divisive topics, right? You can't talk about yes. controversial issues. So like, is a survey about gun control a political survey or does it have to be about like political alignments or something like that? Yeah, I mean, all of the surveys that I get are like, you know, should we ally with Israel? Should we spend more money on military? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. so there are these questions that, I mean, there may be like one question about abortion and one question about immigration. And because for some reason, immigration is a controversial topic. Mm-hmm. And it's just because we can't discuss it in a civil manner, it suddenly becomes controversial. Um, and so I don't know if it's that, that they just don't want. I mean, we have 14 pages of how to deal with controversial topics in mm-hmm. our teacher handbook. Mm-hmm. And or it was 14 slides, I should say that and I have never read it. I refuse to read it because I mean, I started my government year with um, the removing of the statues um, on Monument mm-hmm. Avenue. I was wondering if y'all had talked about the Lee statues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Texas abortion law and the Biden's vaccine mandate. Those are the we I introduced a class and then I taught them how to do a, a current event write up and those are the three discussions that we had mm-hmm. and they're not, and they, I don't, the kids eyes are like, what? Like, we're going to talk about abortion. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, it's not like we're aborting babies. We're talking about it. Like, well, there's something, like whew, yeah, there's something very funny to this because it's like it, what, what you just described there. Right. I was just thinking about how, how, if you were framing all of this from like an anti-woke perspective instead of like being pro CRT or something and, and like you had said, you know, the government wants to give me a 14 page document about handle, how to handle controversial ideas. But what I do is I show up and just have a real conversation with my students about those controversial ideas. Like you'd be cheered, right? You'd be sort of the hero of, of like personifi- personifying like the goal of free speech and like active discourse around controversial ideas or something. But I do feel like in, as put in this way, like there will be folks who will say, Oh, well, you haven't, you haven't read that thing. You're not doing this properly or something that you, you are sort of a radical in the way that you are approaching talking about these kinds of issues. Like, I just think there's, there's sort of a weird, sort of there's a weird meta conversation that I think maybe as someone you're probably not on Twitter, right? You're not like not as aware of all of these like weird layers of like analysis that go into the behavior of people that are like having these kinds of conversations. But it just like it seems very baffling to me that, you know, on the ground what this stuff looks like is harassing teachers and filling up your time by making you get permission slips to ask your students about abortion or something like that, right? Like as as a as a theoretical topic, right? Like you're not yeah. asking them if they've had abortions or right. something. You're just like having them have a conversation about the policy of abortions. And you can't do that without this teach like like parental oversight or something. I mean, I'm curious how much time do you feel like this kind of stuff is eating up and taking away from like doing like the, you know, the better work of like preparing your curriculum for your students and things like that? Do you feel like you and other teachers are getting sucked up into this stuff? Well, it, in the sense that you, you're only sucked up in the fact of when you're looking for whether it is news articles or like, I, I have to think to myself, Okay, am I going to give them a New York Times article because mm-hmm. of the way that the county feels about the New York Times? Like, because what's happened is that we've now, even though with, like with sources, we've come to see, we see sources now as a good or bad, both sides. And so mm-hmm. I have to say to myself, okay, are they not going to take this information from this new source because of their view? of the news source. Um, and it's the New York times, like for the love mm-hmm. of goodness, like, or the, I mean, I, 
the New York Times is a little easier. Washington Post, I just don't even think about. Like, because, you know, it's, oh, it's leftist commie newspaper. And so whatever your, you know, information you're getting from this is, you know, you're trying to indoctrinate my child. So that kind of stuff, it takes time to find something that for just straight up current events that the kids will accept the news source. Um, is the and kids or the parents? It's well, because it's translated down to students, like mm-hmm. their, how they feel. I mean, if they're only watching Fox News at home and, you know, you're not giving them a Fox News article, they're, they're like, why aren't I getting the same things I'm getting at home? Um, and so, the, I mean, they'll joke, they'll laugh, like, oh, like, oh, oh it's from the New York Times, I see that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You know, I'm like, Yes, it is. That's, like, right. This is super funny to me because one of the other things that's attached to critical race theory is culturally relevant pedagogy, which is this idea that like part of the reason that marginalized students have trouble is because what they experience at home in terms of cultural expectations, social expectations and such is not the same as what they're experiencing in their classrooms or something like that. And there's just, there's another kind of irony here where like what you're now saying is what we really need is culturally relevant pedagogy for like white conservatives who need like need to have their cultural experiences in some way reflected in the learning environment, even when they're home life experiences. I think I have to say are being heavily influenced by like, dangerous right-wing conspiratorial narratives how do you i mean like how do you wrestle with that this is something else like i'm curious about because you're talking about controversial issues right you know and you're dealing with this very live ammo in terms of you're using real media you're not using like fake artificial stories or something like that do you kind of try in any way to influence like where they come out in their judgments about things like vaccinations or something like that? Or is it just like your feeling is you just try to help them think critically and just hope and pray that, that, that they luck out in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, the vaccine, the vaccination, it's been a, a, an unusual thing just because that has such an impact on my day to day in the classroom that Mm -hmm. like last year when someone had in class got COVID, the whole, class was quarantined well at least those within the six feet uh three feet oh i mean yeah i had a i had several times where i had 12 kids taken out um, at one time for two weeks um and i mean we had at one point in time we had a third of our school in quarantine last year so Mm -hmm. a thousand kids were or 500 kids were in the school and 500 kids are at home um, because of contact tracing. This year, with uh, we are fortunate enough to have you know, I'd say about 80 percent of our kids are vaccinated. So when quarantining comes and that it doesn't take my entire class, but so I have a I I literally like when a kid's like I gotta go you know I'm like I can't believe you're not vaccinated. <laughs> And everyone's like, Heather, don't say that. I'm like, but like, I, I, so when, when it comes to like, whether or not like vaccines should be mandated or I have been teaching government for so long that no topic is as new and as, I don't personally guess the word, as vaccine, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. all these other kind of controversial topics, I've heard discussions about them from, you know, four classes for 24 years. Um, and so right. I, what ends up happening is that I will get both, if you will, if, if there's only, let's say two sides to a discussion, um, I'll get the sides that I need from the student discussion. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll get those, I'll get all the perspectives that I need. And if, um, if it isn't being um, discussed on like what's the two sides then I'll just simply say like others would say X um, but I I'm not so tied to my opinions um, about topics anymore because again I've had to I've had to, I mean in some cases I have to listen to crazy um, and then to wait mm-hmm. for crazy to be contradicted you know 
um, in some other students, you know, opinion. But I mean, we have a county where like they wanted to not mask the students. Um, uh, and mm-hmm. so the superintendent put forth that only elementary school students would be have to be masked because they couldn't get the vaccine. And people yelled in the audience that um, we know where you live. And they yelled, uh, this is the Holocaust 2.0. Mm-hmm. elementary school kids so our county voted down to not have any mask and then the next day the governor was like hey you can't control yourself so we have a mask mandate um i was like good job Hanover county <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah um Ugh. yeah i mean so i i just hope that discussion with the students is like opened their eyes enough to you know, at least like, like, oh, I never, I never thought of that perspective before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but again, you can't, I always tell the kids, like, it's not controversial unless I make it controversial. Like, it's not um, going, unless I say like, oh, we're, we're going to, we're going to tread lightly around abortion today. If I just say like, it's the state's responsibility and right to regulate abortion. Like, yes, no, like. And mm-hmm. yes, yes, I think it is. And here's why. No, I don't. I move forward. Like mm-hmm. it. And so everyone's always with me. They're like, oh, you just you do a good job with it. And I'm like, no, it's the only way you can go about it and still mm-hmm. get the outcomes that you want. Interesting. Um, well, we are sadly running short on time here. Are there I like to wrap up with sort of resources that folks might find helpful if they want to dive a little further into this. I guess in this case, are there resources in your own journey of trying to understand what everybody's freaking out about um, that you found like were particularly helpful? I mean, to be honest, no, because where I am now when it Mm -hmm. comes to like control in my classroom, um, I've just been using like current events and the New York Times, uh, there's, there's been so many articles about the slippery slope of what can and cannot be said in the classroom, mm-hmm. uh, that that's where really where I am right now. Mm-hmm. It's just learning about what's happening. Just having the conversations about what conversations you can have all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I see a lot of that meta discourse these days. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, it was more that it, I, like looking at other states and seeing what's happening there is and know that it's going to come to Virginia um, um, and, and starting the kind of the fight now and letting mm-hmm. them know that we know this is happening um, has been kind of my greatest resource in the sense of that mm-hmm. I've got to stop before it starts. Do you get any vibe that like post-election the energy died back a little bit and you're probably going to wait and you're going to be seeing a bunch more CRT signs again, you know, October of next year? Well, because we're changing, I I don't think we'll see as many because we're changing um, governors, the political affiliation. So we're moving from Democratic Mm -hmm. to Republican. And so I think that there will be a big push to focus in on preventing something that doesn't exist. But Mm -hmm. um, so there's going to be an ally in the governor's mansion um, for the kind of the fear factor. And they'll want to quickly claim victory over the thing that doesn't exist. So yes, yes, exactly. All right. Well, this has been great. And I, I um I would love to talk more about this at some point. But in the meantime, I unfortunately I don't you're not aware of this maybe, but I end every show, I have to unfortunately torture you. So this is what we call the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So here's how this is going to work. I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to enjoy this. Think of this like a theory of knowledge activity, right? (laughs) I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You can't hedge. You don't get to define what you mean by real or not real. Your only reaction response is real or not real. Make sense? Yep. Okay, great. So first of all, let me just check. Um, Do you think that anything is real? Yes. Okay, great. I have to ask because it's a philosophy podcast. Um, let's find out what <laughs> is real. So first of all, the external world, real or not real? Real. 
All right. Colors, real or not real? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness, like your inner world of experience. Not real. Free will. Real. Selves or persons? Selves. Uh, or, real or not real? Yeah. yeah. No, it was real. Okay. Uh, <laughs> genders? Not real. Races? Not real. Species? Hmm. <laughs> not real. Okay. Morality? Oh, not real. Rights? Not real. Knowledge? Real. God or gods? Not real. Society? Uh, real. Money? Mm, not real. Numbers? Oh, not real. <laughs> Fictional characters? Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? <laughs> real. <laughs> Science? Uh, real. Natural laws? Mm, not real. Beauty? Uh, not real. Love? Oh, gosh. Real. <laughs> Causality? Uh, not real. And finally, time. Oh, not real. All right. How do you feel? You survived. Yeah. And it was, that was very fun. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you liked that. Well, you know, uh, my dad was a philosophy professor. So <laughs> I did not know that. That's yeah. amazing. Yep. That explains why you were so comfortable with uh, or so switched on for that. That's hilarious to me. Uh, I didn't realize that you had that, that background, but no, yep. that was great. Um, uh, it's been fun. I really appreciate you taking the time out of dealing with all the other nonsense to have this chat. Um, I guess there's not really anywhere I can point folks for where to find. Usually I just have to tell folks, you know, where can they find your your work and stuff. But I don't think you're doing any like activism on Twitter or anything. No. <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they shouldn't go looking for your things. Yeah. So apparently that gets you called I agree. Yeah. <laughs> okay. right. well, I got six so more years. Coming up. Yeah, so much. Okay, six more years and then yeah. you can. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks, as always, to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Shout out to Mitch Comfort for upping his pledge. Very much appreciated. Um, and shout outs to our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Jesse Urbanowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. Covina needs your support for voting districts. Join us December 21st, 7.30 p.m. PST via Zoom. Google Covina City Council for meeting info. Fix the vote, dude. If it's not there, where is it? Is it anywhere? And Lawrence Shielding. And all the thanks to our top tier Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content, which will be changing in the new year. Most of all, no matter what they teach you in class, you are the void and the void is you. 